Once again, good morning, everybody. Grab your Bibles. Turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 is where we are today as we continue this series, I Am. And uh, as you turn there, as you find your place in John chapter 10, uh, just a, a little bit of an aside here, a story I want to tell you has nothing to do with, with our message today. Uh, but uh, it missed, some of you may be able to tell that this past week, actually on Friday, I got my hair cut. And uh, when, I, when I got, I don't know what the laughs mean. <laughs> But uh, when I got home on Friday after getting my hair cut, um, my four-and-a-half-year-old son, Lucas, was there. And for about 30 minutes or so, he was just looking at me really funny. And I know it was because of my haircut, but I didn't want to say anything because I wanted to see if, if he would say anything. And so finally, after about 30 minutes, finally he broke the ice and he said, Daddy, did you get a haircut? And I said, yeah, but I did get a haircut. And he said, oh, it looks good. It looks good. So I thought, okay, great. I got my son's approval. And then about an hour later, we were uh, getting ice cream together, and, and he still was just looking at me really funny, like the entire time. And, and finally, the truth came out. And he said, Daddy, um, I kind of like your haircut, but I kind of don't. He said, it looks kind of weird. When is your hair going to grow back? And I said, well, you know, but it, it takes a little bit, but every day it's going to grow a little bit more. And then he seemed kind of satisfied by that. And then yesterday we were in the pool together, and I'm kind of a glutton for punishment. So I, I asked him, I said, son, do you, do you still not like daddy's haircut? And he said, yeah, I don't like your haircut, daddy. <laughs> he said, it doesn't look very good. So um, kids can be brutal, huh? Right? I mean, you got to have thick skin when you have kids. And so that has nothing to do with my message, but I tell you that just because uh, I want some compliments on my haircut, because I'm feeling, feeling very self-conscious about it right now. So that's why I tell you that story. And now for something completely different. John chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 1. Jesus is speaking here, and I want to read this passage that we're taking a look at today. John chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus says this. He says, Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through in through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. 
Father God, as we come to uh, this very rich passage here today, Lord, um, that is all about your son Jesus and who he is and what he does for us, God. Um, Father, I I know that there are things here that you have for each and every one of us in this room if we have the ears to listen to them. God, I know that you, through your son Jesus, uh, I believe, just really want to meet us in this passage. And so, God, we just pray that that would happen today. We pray that you would give us ears and hearts to listen to what you have to say, Lord. And we would pray that the, by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, you would take these words that, that he has written, you would take these words that your son Jesus has said, uh, you would take the words of, of anybody who stands on this stage, God, and that um, ultimately, Father, we would get the chance to hear what you have to say today. And so we, we thank you for this time, and we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as we begin here today, uh, I'm going to put a quote on the screen, and this is a quote I've actually shared with you before, but it is, it is such an important quote that I want to I share it with you again. It's by a man by the name of A.W. Tozer. He was a very famous Christian author and pastor from decades ago, and in one of his very classic works called The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer wrote the following. He said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me read that again. He said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, I don't know what you think about that quote. I imagine I'd have to give you some time to really reflect on it in order to form an opinion of it. But as I have sat with that quote on and off now for several years and reflected on it, I think that what A.W. Tozer says here is, is right on. You know, if what we talk about every weekend from this stage is true, if this book is true, if the words of this book is true, then that means that at the end of time, there is nothing that is going to matter more than what we thought about God here on this earth, who he is, what he's like, and what he wants from each and every one of us. What comes into our mind when we think about God, that is the most important thing about us. And really, at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, that that is why we're doing this series on Jesus. Because if this quote is true, and if Jesus is God, which is what we believe here, and we believe that because it is clear that Jesus believed that about himself. That's what these I am statements are showing us. So if Jesus is God, and if this quote is true, then that means that, that there is nothing that we can do on this earth that is more worth our time, more worth our investment, than studying about Jesus, than getting to know Jesus, than learning about Jesus. And not just studying what other people say about Jesus, and this is especially important, but but going to the source itself, learning from Jesus, from from his own very words themselves. I remember when I was a, a senior in high school, this is when my faith really started to take hold. I really started to take my faith in Jesus seriously. And at that time, I just could not get enough books about Christianity. I couldn't get enough books about Jesus, about the Bible, about the Christian faith. And so I remember one day I was in the Christian section of Barnes & Noble, and I was looking for the next Christian book that I was going to read. And there was this woman who I had never met before, and she just came up to me out of nowhere. And she said to me something like this. She said, as I was standing in the Christian section of Barnes & Noble, she said, young man, be careful. She said, don't let those books take you away from the real book, referring to the Bible. She said, young man, be careful. Don't let those books take you away from the real book. And I remember at that time being caught very off guard. And I remember thinking to myself myself, something like this, come on, lady, give me a break. I'm not buying cigarettes here. I'm buying a Billy Graham book, for goodness sakes, you know. I wasn't a very good Christian back then. 
But the older I get, the, the more I recognize what it is that she was saying. You know, there, there are a lot of books out there that claim to be about God, about Jesus. And, and there's nothing wrong with a lot of those books. They serve their role. They have their purpose. But, but if that's all we read, if, if our only opinion about Jesus and God is based on what other people say about him and we don't go to the source, th- then we're liable to misunderstand who Jesus really is. We're, we're liable to get a false impression of him. That's exactly the mistake that the religious people of Jesus' day made. I don't know if any of you have been reading through the Gospel of John as we've been in this series, but all these I am statements we're looking at, they all come from the Gospel of John. And if you read through the Gospel of John, you will see that at practically every turn, in almost every single chapter, Jesus is being opposed by a group of people. And not just opposed by a group of people, Jesus is being attacked by a group of people. And it's a group of people known as the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, in case you don't know, they were the religious people of the day. In fact, the best way I can always think to describe the Pharisees, and don't take offense to this, but the best way I can always think to describe the Pharisees is they were the the you and me of that day. They were the churchgoers of that day. They were the ones who took their faith more seriously than anybody else in that day. But there was a problem that the Pharisees had. And the problem was that by and large, the Pharisees relied on the teachings of other people and not the Bible itself, not the source itself, but the teachings of other people to form their opinion about God. You see, there was another group of people at the time of Jesus known as the rabbis. And the rabbis were the pastors of the day. And the rabbis had a lot of thoughts about who God was and what he was like. And so they taught the people these thoughts. And it was largely these thoughts that formed the basis of the Pharisees' understanding of who God is and what he is like and what he wants from each and every one of us. And because of that, because the Pharisees relied on the teachings of other people and they didn't go to the source, they got such a mixed up understanding of who God was That when he actually was standing right in front of them in the form of Jesus Christ, they completely missed him. In fact, more than miss him, they opposed him. They attacked him. You want a great example of that? Sometime this week, read the chapter right before the one I just read. Read John chapter 9. At the beginning of John chapter 9, you'll see that Jesus performs this incredible miracle. He actually heals a man who was born blind. And it's an incredible display of Jesus' power and of his compassion. He takes this man who had been unable to see since the day he was born, and Jesus gives him sight. But as you'll read in John chapter 9, in the eyes of the Pharisees, there's a problem with Jesus' miracle. And the problem with Jesus' miracle is that he performed this miracle on the Sabbath. He performed it on the day of the week in the Jewish faith that they set aside as a day for rest and not a day for work. And the problem with healing someone on the Sabbath was that there was this law, this, this, this teaching that the rabbis taught that the Pharisees believed that basically said that God almost allowed no movement whatsoever on the Sabbath. And that's not that much of an exaggeration. In fact, the Pharisees actually had a law. And the law said that you couldn't spit on the Sabbath. And the reason why is because if you spit and your spit hit the dirt, it could cause like a separation in the dirt, and that was thought to be a lot like plowing, and since plowing was a work and you couldn't work on the Sabbath, therefore you couldn't spit on the Sabbath. No exaggeration. That actually was true. Now, the Bible doesn't say that. The Old Testament says nothing about spitting on the Sabbath. In fact, in several cases, the Old Testament actually allows for work in some situations on the Sabbath day. But the Pharisees, they believe their teachers over and against the Word of God. 
And so actually, this miracle that Jesus performed on the Sabbath, it created a dilemma for the Pharisees. And the dilemma was that for Jesus to heal a man, obviously he had some sort of power operating within him, right? To, to give a man sight. There was some sort of power that Jesus had. But the Pharisees couldn't say that this power came from God because if God were on this earth, they thought he wouldn't so much as lift a finger on the Sabbath. So they had to come up with another source for Jesus' power. And what was their explanation? We actually saw it in verse 20 of the passage that I read. John chapter 10, verse 20. It says, many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? Jesus is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? So obviously Jesus had a power, but this power could not have come from God, the Pharisees thought. And so there was only one other source for this power that Jesus had. And what was their source? What was their explanation? It came from Satan. It came from the devil. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine being so twisted in your view of God that when he is standing right in front of him, you accuse him of being the enemy? You accuse him of being Satan? That's what the Pharisees did. And it's this twisted understanding that the Pharisees had of God. That's what leads Jesus to launch into this very famous, I am the good shepherd speech. We're in one of the longest sustained treatments we have in the scriptures of Jesus' identity. We get a picture of who Jesus is and what he has come to this earth to do. And we get this picture from, from the lips of Jesus himself. John chapter 10, brothers and sisters, this is the source. This is God talking about himself in his own words. And as I was studying this passage a couple of weeks ago, there was an individual that came to my mind, a pastor on staff here at Friends Church, who I very highly admire and respect. And this is a man who, who I believe can do a far better job than I in teaching you this passage and what Jesus says here. This is a man who has been in the faith longer than I have. And from his own life experiences and from his journey of, of walking with Jesus, he knows firsthand what it means when Jesus calls himself our shepherd. And this is an individual with just an incredible shepherd's heart himself. And so this weekend, I have asked Pastor Kent Craney, the pastor of our adult care ministries here at Friends Church, to teach this passage, what Jesus says, and what it means for us. So would you do me a favor, and would you give a very warm welcome to Pastor Kent Craney as he takes the stage? Thank you, man. Thank you, Chris. I uh, appreciate that man. He is a good man. He's an excellent teacher, and I was honored to be asked by him to come here, but as he was introducing me, I thought what he was saying really was, I'm old. Um, <laughs> but he said it so nicely, it's hard to be upset about it, actually. Um, I also was, uh, I wore a lighter shirt last night, and one of the good guys on our team came up to me and said, you know, if you could wear a darker shirt tomorrow, your light hair and your light shirt is making it hard for us to catch your face. I'm thinking, light hair. So, bam. Hey, I'm so uh, honored to uh, take some time and unpack this with you because I think this statement that Jesus makes is one of the hardest ones for you and I to hold on to. It's one of the hardest ones for us to believe all the time. The idea of shepherd is an interesting one. It, it in some ways is alluded to in Scripture over 500 times. Forty times God refers to himself as shepherd. So it's not an accident. It's not just a, a passing statement. It, it's an important piece of who God is. 
We see it in the Old Testament where God is pictured as the shepherd. The most famous passage, Psalm 23, leads off, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Psalm 79 says, then we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will praise you forever. From generation to generation, we'll proclaim your praise. And in Psalm 100, we read, know that the Lord is God, is he who made us, we are his, we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. In Isaiah, we see a reference using the shepherd for the Messiah, for Jesus himself. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. But we don't see shepherds these days, especially in Orange County. Not too many shepherds wandering the streets here in our neck of the woods. Most of us haven't ever even met a shepherd or seen a shepherd. Know only from stories a little bit about them. But in Jesus' time, his reference here would have carried with it a whole lot more to it, a whole lot more imagery that they would have immediately recognized. Sir George Adam Smith, who traveled Palestine a lot, wrote these words about a shepherd, on some high moor across which at night the hyenas would howl, when you meet him sleepless, far-sighted, weather-beaten, leaning on his staff, looking over his scattered sheep, every one of them on his heart. You understand why the shepherd of Judea sprang to the front of his people's history, why they gave his name to their kings and made him the symbol of providence, why Christ took him as a type of self-sacrifice. Constant vigilance, fearless, courageous, patiently loving their flock was the shepherd. Ezekiel makes reference to the shepherd being the leaders as well. Woe be to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? Ezekiel 34. And in the New Testament, we see references to the same theme again and again. He has pity upon his people because they are sheep without a shepherd. And strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Both Matthew and Mark tell us these things. In 1 Peter, he's the shepherd of our souls. And in Hebrews 13, he's the great shepherd of the sheep. It's a continual theme throughout Scripture. But we don't, we don't have a full understanding of that. So I want to take a moment and just kind of depict a little bit about what they would have known, what the people Jesus was talking to would have easily drawn a picture of. Uh, the shepherd would have had what they called a scrip, uh, a skinned bag that would have had some food in it for the day, probably some dried fruit or some bread. He often would carry a sling, and the sling uh, was for um, protection it was for warding off enemies. It might also be used for directing the sheep as well. The, the sling was two cords or two strands that held long with a pouch at the end, and a stone would be placed in that, and they would whirl it around and send it off. And we're told from some accounts that good shepherds had the ability to send that stone with such accuracy they could take a hair off the top of your head. They would actually use it to navigate their sheep. They might send it to a straying sheep at the nose of it to scare it back in the direction they wanted it to go. They were incredibly accurate with it. I heard one historian's account of the David and Goliath story and said, we always depict that as, as David being the underdog. He said, if you knew shepherds of that day, you would not have seen him as the underdog. His ability with that sling far outweighed the ability of a nine-foot man in armor with a spear and a sword. He had a staff. It was a, a short wooden club with a piece of wood at the end. Often it was spiked for warding off enemies and protecting the sheep. And he also had a rod, which is the shepherd's crook, what we so commonly think of when we think of a shepherd. The hook used to 
steer the sheep, to redirect them. He would often lay that staff across the opening of a makeshift shelter for the sheep if he was out in the wilderness for a period of time. Um, he would inspect every sheep as it came under there. As they went in and out of the pen, he made sure that they were not injured during the course of the day. He knew every one of them. And he would oftentimes lay himself down in the opening, becoming the gate or the doorway. And many of these images are mentioned in this passage as Jesus is describing himself to the people. He knew every sheep by name when they came in. They often had names that depicted their appearance. They might have a, a torn ear. They might have a discoloration, and they would give them names accordingly. I'm glad we don't do that today with our families. It'd be awkward. <laughs> the shepherd went out in front of the sheep. Jesus says that as well. He made sure the path was clear. He went before them. What they were going to walk through, he's already walked through, and he would guide them in that direction. And sometimes he had to make sure their path was was safe, but sometimes he had to take in places that were, were fairly risky. And so um, stories are told of one particular shepherd who came to a, a, a river where the water was running a little too fast for the sheep. They didn't want to go in. They were a little timid. And so the shepherd scooped up a lamb, took it to the other side, and waited until mama got enough courage to come get the lamb. Eventually, mama came across, and when mama came, everybody else came. Because the shepherd knows the sheep. He knows what they need. He also knows what he needs to do in order to get them to what they need. And these are the images that these people would have had at that time and known about. The shepherd's voice was known to the sheep. They won't respond to a stranger. Now, many times these sheep would be lifelong with the same shepherd, and so they knew well the sound of that voice. W.M. Thompson in The Land of the Book writes this about the shepherd and his voice. The shepherd calls sharply from time to time and reminds them of his presence. They know his voice. They follow on. But if a stranger were to call, they stop short, lift their heads in alarm, and if it's repeated, they turn and flee because they know not the voice of the stranger. I have made this experiment repeatedly. I love that last line. That must have ticked off some shepherds, you know. This guy's calling out until he finally gets them to run off. Yep, it happened again. You know, thank you for that. H.V. Morton tells of a scene he saw in a cave in Bethlehem. Oftentimes, local shepherds would come to the same location at night with all their sheep. And then in the morning, they would head out. And he tells of being uh, there to witness as the two shepherds began to call their particular calls as they walked away. And one by one, every sheep followed his shepherd. And they went out of the pen. So you can mingle multiple herds of sheep together, and when the shepherd left, they knew the sound of the voice they were supposed to follow, and they would not follow a stranger, as Jesus mentions in his passage, right? The most powerful statement out of all of it is the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. We're told in, in Scripture that in Amos declares that you had to give proof. If you were a shepherd and you lost a sheep, you had to give proof that that sheep was taken in some form, that it wasn't your fault. Um, and we read in Amos chapter 3 that a, a leg and a piece of ear was brought by a shepherd as evidence that he had done everything he could to protect from the wild animals. There was a law in Exodus 22, if torn by beasts, let him bring evidence. It's not okay to just say, hey, lost one. It doesn't work. You have to give account. You have to have done everything you can. You have to be willing to lay down your life. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. David tells the story of winning the battle with lions and bears, and Isaiah chapter 31 says that there was a lion problem in a village, and the people sought the shepherds to come deal with the lion. When you got an issue, who do you go to? The ones who are equipped, fearless, have the ability to handle. 
That's just not the picture I think most of us have of a shepherd. These guys were tough. Thompson, in the land of the book, also writes this, I have listened with intense interest to the graphic descriptions of downright and desperate fights with these savage beasts. When the thief and the robber come, and come they do, the faithful shepherd has often to put his life in the hands to defend the flock. I have known more than one case where he had literally to lay down in the contest. A poor faithful fellow last spring between Tiberias and Tabor, instead of fleeing, actually fought three Bedouin robbers until he was hacked into pieces by their can jars, and he died among the sheep he was defending. The good shepherd never hesitated to lay down his life for the sake of the sheep. That's who Jesus calls himself. Similarly, we see Jesus' whole life as an act of obedience, right? He saw the cross and glory in the same picture. There was no escaping one to get to the other. He, he never doubted that he had to die. He never doubted that he would rise again. He never doubted that God would be faithful in that journey. He was not a victim of circumstances. He wasn't dragged off unwillingly and uncontrollably to some undestined fate. Jesus laid down his life. He did not lose it. He gave it for you and I. The cross was not thrust upon him. He willingly accepted it. He is the good shepherd. Maybe it's the hardest passage to believe because of the word good, though. We know that he laid down his life for us, and actually, if that were all he ever did, it ought to be enough. But this word good kind of throws us. It's an interesting word in the Greek. The one they chose was one of two choices in Greek language they could have chosen to say good. They could have chosen agathos, which simply is a description of moral and, 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 and physical capabilities. A good shepherd, he can do his job, he can, he's, he's faithful at his task, he does everything the law requires. But the word that was chosen here is kalos, which is a different word. It has all of that, but it also carries with it a winsomeness, a goodness, a kindness about it. It's the difference between a very effective surgeon and one who desperately cares about you and is also really good. Which do you want? Well, I, I want a good one, but I'd love one with a bedside manner that cared about me. That's the word that's used here. When Jesus says the good shepherd, they all knew what he meant. He meant not just effective, not just God who, who rules everything, but somehow cares intimately and personally about every one of his sheep. That's the good shepherd. And that's why I think this statement he makes is so hard for us to swallow. He's a good shepherd. He knows my name. He cares about me. He cares about my family. He cares about my hurts. He grieves when I suffer. When someone dies, he grieves. He's a good shepherd. He loves me. I know this because he laid down his life for me. But is that all I need? It ought to be enough. If he never answered a single prayer I ever sent up, it ought to be enough that he laid down his life for me. But I would suggest to you today, it's not. It's not. Because life has a way of pushing against the good. Of all the things he said in that passage, he says twice to us, he's the good shepherd. And I would suggest to you that word good is, is probably one of the hardest things that he says. We don't think about it too much. And he says a lot in that passage that we can wrestle with theologically. There's a, all kinds of things to unpack there. But I think the hardest one in the day-to-day -day of life 
is that he's good. Because is he still good when the world is in such chaos around us? Is he still good when my prayers go unanswered and I'm left in my suffering, in my pain? Is he still good when cancer takes over and takes a loved one from me? Is he still the good shepherd when a loved one dies? I mean, those are the honest things of life. And I would suggest to you those are the times that push on us the most on whether God is really good, right? Because we've all heard it. Somebody has said it. You've said it. If God was really a good God, then why fill in the blank? If he's really good, then how come we had to, whatever that story is for you, every one of us has some piece of that, and some of you are in it right now. A few weeks ago, I was wrestling with one of these whys, some things that had happened, and I, and I still am wrestling with. But I was writing in my journal some thoughts about it, and this why came up, and I've done enough memorial services that I know why. It's just that, that, that space we find ourselves in, and God doesn't get upset about the why. Jesus cried why on the cross. I mean, why is an okay question, but man, it can, it can kill us. And I feel like God gave me a picture, and I want to show it to you. I drew it in my journal and asked the guys here to create it for us, and it's this one. We were beating for God. Our heart was pounding for the Lord. We were faithful and in love with Him, and then a why hits. I don't know if you can see it or not, but an episode came. And if we're not careful, it can flatline us. Our heart was beating for God. It was going along just fine. It, it, was, it was moving, and then something happened. And I don't know what your why is this morning, or someone you know and love who that why hit them, and you know they, they quit believing. They, they stopped. It, it, it's pulled them up short. They can't get it going again. They can't, it's flatlined them for the Lord. They're still alive, but spiritually something died. That's why as I looked at this passage, there's a lot of things to talk about. But for me, the most important piece of the puzzle is how do we wrestle with a good God in the midst of the why? In the midst of the stuff that comes, Chris shared that quote from A.W. Tozer. It's a great quote. I, I believe it. It's true. What you believe about God, what comes to your mind when you think about Him, is the most important thing about us. But I would add to that and say what comes to your mind when the why has hit you that may be the most important, right? Because if everything's going great for you, it's easy. It's easy to believe in God. All my prayers are answered. Everything I want has happened. Some of you are riding in that. I'm following God, and my job is doing great, and, you know, everything's, my family's good. But, man, when the why hits... It changes all of it. And all of a sudden, we have to decide, what do we believe about God? Is he still the good shepherd? Or did something change? And I would submit what changes is in here. Not, not him. But it's hard to get back. It's hard to get the heart beating again, but it has to. We have to get to a place where we take a hold of the truth of Scripture beyond the feelings that have stolen our heart and allow our heart to beat again. There has to be a point where the heart was beating, the why hits, every one of us is going to have one, and it may for a time cause us to have trouble believing he's still good, but somewhere in there, we've got to get the heart beating again. Somewhere in there, it's a conscious decision to say, I still believe in a good God. And, I, and honestly, what are the better options out there? 
that he's just a mean God, that he's vindictive. Somehow you deserve this, so he sent down a bolt. You did everything right, and yet he still put you through this because he likes doing that kind of stuff. I mean, what other option is there than to believe that this world is not our home, that there's an enemy who wants to tear you apart, and there's a good and loving shepherd who cares about his sheep, who knows everything about them, whose heart breaks when they hurt, and who's waiting on the other side of the why for your heart to beat for him again because he sees a, bit of, a bigger picture, a, a destination that we can't see, a place we need to get to that's not this place. Danny Gokey, singer-songwriter who lost his wife to cancer, recently wrote a song called Tell Your Heart to Beat Again. And I want to read it to you. He says, you're shattered like you've never been before, the life you knew in a thousand pieces on the floor. And words fall short in times like these when this world drives you to your knees. You think you're never going to get back to the you that used to be. Tell your heart to beat again. Close your eyes. Breathe it in. Let the shadows fall away and step into the light of grace. Yesterday's a closing door. You don't live there anymore. Say goodbye to where you've been. Tell your heart to beat again. Beginning. Just let that word wash over you. It's all right now. Love's healing hands pulled you through. So get back up. Take step one. Leave the darkness. Feel the sun. Because your story's far from over and your journey's just begun. So tell your heart to beat again. Close your eyes and breathe it in. Let the shadows fall away and step into the light of grace. Yesterday's a closing door. You don't live there anymore. Say goodbye to where you've been and tell your heart to beat again. Let every heartbreak and every scar be a picture that reminds you who has carried you this far. Because love sees further than you ever could. In this moment, heaven's working everything for your good. So tell your heart to beat again. Close your eyes, breathe it in. Let the shadows fall away and step into the light of grace. Yesterday is a closing door. You don't live there. You don't live there anymore. Say goodbye to where you've been and tell your heart to beat again. Man. Sometimes I just have to tell my heart to beat again because it doesn't want to. I still have to believe that God is good even though it doesn't want to. We had a, a close friend of ours in our church up in Northern California whose uh, daughter was killed tragically in, in an accident. She was over in Africa. and Natalie loved the Lord dearly and, and uh, just an accident. And she was taken. And I remember being in her mom and dad's house the next morning. And we were there just to sit with them, right? And I remember Sally, long, long standing love for the Lord, saying, now I'll find out if everything that I've been telling others is really true. Now I'll find out if, if I can still believe after this. Because the why hits hard, right? And the why doesn't answer any questions really. God's okay with it. We can ask it. But it, it can really stick us. It can and really keep us from moving forward. It's not an advancing sort of a question. And even if you know the answer to that question, it really doesn't solve anything. In this moment, there was just devastation. Over time, we found out that because of that loss, there were, there were villages that came to Christ. There were people that came to the Lord who would never come to the Lord in other circumstances. 
The mission place she was heading toward had just this monumental movement that had never been seen before. And in the midst of all of that, I remember sitting with mom and her saying to me, I know God is using this for his glory, but I just want my daughter back. See, the why didn't help. She got a glimpse of it, but it still doesn't help. And if you stay there, it can just flatline you. We have to move forward. Billy Graham once said, life's hard, but God is good and heaven is real. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Life is hard, but God's good. And heaven is a real place. You know, when we had that, that loss of Natalie, that, that was a year for us, and, and maybe some of you have had seasons like that. It was a year for us when there was hit after hit after hit. There were just a bunch of things. And it was one of those years when it closed and the new year came when we were just praying for a different year because it was bad. And it was in that season that we spent a lot of time in our church just saying, God is good and echoing back what? All the time. And all the time, God is good. And sometimes we just had to say it. We didn't feel it, but we just had to say it to remind ourselves that God is good and all the time, now, some of you here can't say that right now, but I would challenge you that we have to keep moving in that direction because this is the only way to make sense out of things is that a good God sees more than we do, loves us dearly, weeps with us, and has a place on the other side of yesterday. Tomorrow is a place he'll be with us in. And let me add this one thought as I close. We do a real disservice to each other, and I did this from the pulpit, I have said it before, and I came to a conclusion that changed that course for me. But we do a real disservice to people when they're going through something. We say to them, um, hey, God won't give you more than you can handle. And it sounds good, but it's not biblical. There's a passage in Scripture in 1 Corinthians that says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able so that verse is saying, you will never be in a situation where you will be tempted to sin and there's nothing you can do. You're going to have to sin. That will never happen. There's always a way out. It may not be comfortable. It may not be your favorite thing to do. It may actually cost you. But there, you don't have to sin. There's always a way out. He never once in Scripture says, you won't have more than you can handle. In fact, I would suggest many Scriptures point to the opposite of that. And if you look at the men and women in Scripture, you will see consistently that the men and women in Scripture got more than they could handle. Abraham got more than he could handle. Isaac got more than he could handle. Moses got more than he could handle. David got more than he could handle. If you go to the New Testament, all but one of the apostles died a martyr's death, I would suggest to you that's more than you can handle. And John was put into exile. And Jesus sat in the garden and said, if there's any way, I, I don't want to go this way. This is more than I can handle. It's just part of this life. So I, I know we mean well when we say it, but the reality is we're all going to get at some point more than we can handle. It pushes us to our knees and calls on a God who wants to be there for us and walk with us in this journey. And we're called to do it together. Galatians says, bear one another's burdens. We're supposed to care for one another in these seasons. Bear one another's burdens assumes we're all going to be in a season where we have need. And we try as we can at this church to be there in those seasons. We can't meet every physical need out there, but pray we're here for the spiritual side of it at least. But to be together and care for one another in those journeys, it's why we encourage the, the rooted to get plugged into a life group so you're connected to people. You're not walking alone if you're struggling. 
But on Monday nights, we also have some groups. Some are current right now. Some will launch in the fall where maybe that why that hit you is tied to one of these care groups that we have here. And you just need to come and be a part of that. We have divorce care and blended family support that's coming up. You may be wrestling with some things there. Maybe you're wrestling with this bombardment in our culture of pornography and, and the sexual things. And you're a guy just going, man, I just need, I need somebody to walk with me in this. You know, this is not something to just buckle up against. The enemy wants to take out your family. So the men of integrity meet every Monday night. Grief share and cancer companions, they meet continuously through the year and are right now. Financial Peace University, maybe the why that hit you is a job loss and economic, and you need some, some place to go for that. And then we have Stephen Ministry, too, here. Many of you don't even know we have this, but we got a number of folks who've been trained to just be good listeners and to prayerfully come alongside you. Um, sometimes the why forces you to need counsel. You need to go see somebody, and we don't offer that here, but we have some great recommendations of folks. And maybe you need to say, I need to go talk to somebody who needs to help me because I cannot figure out where to go. But some of you are just alone. You, you, you don't need counseling. You just are going through something. You could get there probably, but it's just, it's just painful. And having somebody there weekly to just listen, pray with you, encourage you, that's what these folks are trained and desiring to do. So maybe as I talk about this, you say, man, I, I know God's good, but I'm not feeling it right now. If you could spend some time with someone who would just listen and pray with you and keep you moving in that direction until, until that feeling lines up with the truth a little bit more, then we'd love to get you connected to that. At the end of the service, we'll have people down here to pray. If you need prayer, you can come to that. But we'll also have some of our Stephen ministers who are also part of the prayer team, some of them. We'll have some of our Stephen ministers down here too. And you can see on their badge they're a part of that. If that sounds something like something that would be helpful to you, um, find one of them and just talk to them about Stephen ministry. And maybe you're here thinking, I, that would be me. I'd love to just listen and care for someone because I've been through it and I could be on the other side of that. Talk to them about that as well because that's what we're called to do. Um, you can see on our website, uh, slash care, friends.church slash care, you can find where the times and resources and when things launch in the fall, that stuff will all get updated. But I want to just encourage you that, that if you're going through something right now, God gets it. He knows. The hardest place to get past is that why that can keep us stuck. Pray that God will open your heart to see him as the good shepherd. He says it to us. He declares it to be true. There's not a lot of better answers out there than to believe that a good shepherd loves you, cares for you. He's a good, good father. It's who he is, and we're loved by him. It's who we are. We have to hold fast to that truth, even when the feelings are fighting against it. Father God, we just pray right now that you'd give us the courage to believe that you're a good father, that you're a good shepherd, that you love us dearly, Lord. Um, I pray especially for some here who, uh, that's a hard thing to say right now. It's a hard thing to feel. I pray also for some in this room, maybe you, you have a loved one who some sort of hurt or injury or pain has shut the door between them and you. And Lord, I pray that you'd open that door. I pray that you'd give encouragement to continue to pray for that door to open. And Father, just pray that you would renew our faith in you, that you're a, a good shepherd who cares for his sheep. You laid down your life. That's how much you love us. Lord, help us to believe that, we pray in Jesus' name.